I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. Often, when we're discussing groups of people, we speak in terms of data, polls, graphs, percentages. And while this can offer us insight on the macro level, it leaves a lot of valuable, relevant information out. We're more than numbers, after all. We're individuals. So how can we temper our data sets with our personal, lived experiences? Our guest this week offers up a way to strike a balance. Roderick Graham is an associate professor at Old Dominion University. His research and publications are on the topics of cybercriminology, digital sociology, and racial inequality. You can learn more about his podcast, his op-eds, his teaching, and his research at roderickgraham.com. Roderick, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Now, I know you sometimes go by Rod. May I address you as such in this discussion? Please do. Rod's great. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Great to hear. So I first came across you and your work when I saw you on an episode of the Braver Angels podcast, in which you discussed systemic racism with Wilfred Riley, who has also been a guest on this show. Since then, I've familiarized myself with some of your work. It's a vast body of content that I recommend anyone listening take a look at. And I've also been following you on Twitter. One thing I've noticed and that I've really come to appreciate is how civilly you engage with those you may disagree with mm-hmm. on Twitter. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the land of hot takes and 280 characters. So, Rod, what prompted you to attempt to sincerely engage on difficult issues on a platform seemingly meant for 280 character long hot takes? Well, I think uh, initially it was just ignorance. I didn't know it was meant for (laughs) 280 character long uh, hot takes. I mean, I I really saw it as just a a place to connect and and, and get to know people, I think. But it's also the case that once I got tenure at my university and I didn't have to just uh, uh, sit down and and do hardcore research all the time, um, I felt that that it was time to start uh, communicating with the public a little bit more. And Twitter is a great place to do it. And we're in a time where there needs to be communication between academics and, and experts and authors and, and the general public. It's also a personality thing as well, I believe. I mean, I, I just don't uh, tend to uh, court conflict. You have a very diplomatic way of, of gently ending discussions that, that, are, that are kind of spiraling out of control. Um, I'm actually trying to model my, my own behavior on Twitter kind of after the way that you do, which is kind of like a polite thank you for engaging and just kind of <laughs> ending right. it from there. Yes, yes. Um, Because one thing that I've, I've found so difficult, and I'm rather new to Twitter, but one thing I've found rather difficult about it is there's just a lot of bad faith assumptions that happen. And I've seen them happen to you. Um, when you're discussing something with with someone where you, and I mean general you here, it could be you, it could be me, anyone on Twitter, you'll make a point about something or you'll be trying to articulate a rather complex issue, you know, in a very tiny amount of space. And like the very next response from someone who you may have never even met before could be, oh, so what you're saying is, or they'll just make a gigantic right. leap of logic and then just impute motives or impute, you know, reasoning to you that that just isn't there. And I think that's the thing that I, I, I struggle with personally on a format like Twitter. One thing that I really love about podcasts is that you can really allow the other person and yourself to kind of elaborate at great length on what you mean. But on Twitter, it just seems so hard. It is. It is. And, and people are, you know, I, I think, uh, and I got this from Iona Atalia. I don't know if you uh, know of her, but she has her own podcast and she's been on mine. Yeah, you've had some great discussions. 
Yes, yes, I, I enjoy talking with her. And and she made a, a point that uh, I, I think is correct. And it's that people are not responding to you personally, usually, because they just don't know you, but they're responding to what you represent. And that's always going to be a flattened, one-dimensional um, caricature of who you are. So if they if they get a whiff that you are, I don't know, woke or anti-woke, uh, fascist, as they would call maybe people on the right, or socialist, people on the left, whatever the, the terms they want to throw out, okay, then that's you. And they've already got these ready-made responses from whatever content they've consumed. And so they just kind of hurl them at you. And that's, that's usually what happens. But over time, uh, what I found is you have a lot of bad faith people, and then you have a lot of good bad faith people. In other words, it's people who are never going to agree with you. And I think maybe they've learned in some other context to ask a lot of questions, hoping it will trip you up. And so, and so they, they're not there to learn from you. They're, they're, they're just there to ask a lot of questions. So you're saying, and what about this? What about that? What about this? But I find those to be good, bad faith people because they help me add more nuance to my uh, ways of thinking. And then finally, you have good, good faith people who don't know uh, or just curious and are willing to, to think outside the box. Yeah, I think that's well said. And there, there were a couple things there that you said that I think are relevant to the discussion we're about to have, which the one thing that really struck out to me was the idea that they're engaging with kind of an assumption they've made about you based on who they think you are vis-a-vis limited information, right? Which I think kind of can tie in mm-hmm. with a topic that's going to happen later on in our discussion about identity politics or lived experiences. And I think those two things kind of intersect in some ways. And then in regards to the the good versus bad faith questioning, those can be a little bit hard to suss out because sometimes like an antagonistic framing can be meant in good faith, right? Like, okay, like let's steel man a position, right? Which is kind of a discussion technique that I've used with a lot of my guests, right? Guests that I wholeheartedly agree with, whether they're John Wood Jr., Wilfred Riley, yourself, I think we have a lot of agreement on a lot of issues where the, the question format is kind of put in a way of, hey, ultimately, I'm going to likely agree with most, if not all of the response that I'm expecting you to provide, but I'm going to provide the question in a somewhat, at least in terms of formatting, an antagonistically designed format to kind of tease out the answer that I'm assuming you'll say. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, with that, with that, that I'm, I guess I'm, I'm laying the, the runway there um, because I, I think that there's a lot of really wonderful points that you make on the issues of lived experiences, ones that I, I deeply connected with, and actually ones that align very closely with a lot of experiences that I've had in therapy. So I think that there's, there's going to be a lot of really great, juicy conversation there. Hmm. Regarding how we analyze data and how we look at experiences that we have on both a micro and a macro level, you speak often on the applications and usefulness of both qualitative and quantitative data. Full disclosure, as someone from a creative background whose brain sort of freezes over when numbers are involved. I had to actually look both those terms up. So for our listeners, can you describe the differences between those two types of data and why one may want to use one or use another or maybe even use both? Okay. So um, ultimately, they're, they're, they're all pieces of evidence. They're all types of data. It's just that one can be more precise, objective, or intersubjective would be a way of thinking about it, where two people can see the same uh, data point and agree on what it is. So, so quantitative data is that way. It's numbers. It's something that if one person sees three, another person sees three. 
So if we're looking at income, that's quantitative data. It's precise. It's objective. There's very little disagreement about about what it is. And uh, I guess putting that in a a culture war context, I guess, uh, you can look objectively at the amount of white civilians who have been shot by police and black civilians who have been shot by by police. So that's 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 pretty objective quantitative data. It's numbers. And it's very powerful because you can then you can then make predictions using mathematical formulas and statistics. So it's a wonderful way of understanding our world. Qualitative data is the type that's hard to put into numbers or it's hard to agree on how to put them into numbers. So using the the, the policing example, okay, it's easy to, to know, okay, this person was shot by the police. Fine, everyone agrees on it. You can count it one to 10. But how do you measure opinions about police? Sure, sociologists have tried and other social scientists have tried to give a survey, right? One to 10, how do you feel about, about the police? But we know that those are you know, very coarse measures. And sometimes it's better to just talk to people and come to a general understanding about how they feel. It would be nice if we could put that into numbers. That might be a higher level way of analysis, but forcing that into numbers or ignoring it is probably just as bad. So a, a lot of the conversations I have about policing, and you had uh, Wilfred Riley on, so he's, he's really the quantitative person. He loves to look at the numbers. Uh, people want to hang their hats on that. Uh, but there's a, there, there's a problem with that, I think, uh, in our society. Uh, two problems, I believe. One is that we think if we can't measure it, it's not important. It's a good way of putting it. And then two is if we measure it, we think it's the most important. So, so, so we can measure. So I'm using the policing example as a way to uh, talk this through. So we think we can measure systemic racism by how many white folks versus black folks are shot by the police and how many are killed. And if you do that, if, if you do that analysis, you might get a conclusion that, well, look at this. The number of white folks being shot by police is similar or even more, depending on what what study uh, you look at. So then you say, well, see, that's it. That, that, that's the answer right there. That is ignoring a whole lot of data that is difficult to put into numbers. So, so you may have a lot of uh, Black people who have been spoken to in a negative way or treated brusquely, maybe uh, stopped and frisked, and that's not put into numbers. Or even if they weren't stopped and frisked, they, they get the sense that police are assuming that they are um, criminals before meeting them. And maybe they've seen, and I'm sure many of your listeners will have seen some comic give the example. I think Dave Chappelle did a famous skit where he's riding with the white person who's smoking marijuana in his car and the police stop him. And um, that's such a great, that's right. So, you know, this, and see, the reason why that's funny is because I guess white folks also are aware of this, but certainly black folks are aware that, okay, it seems as if uh, there's a, a different level of treatment by police. Okay, it's difficult to put into numbers, but you need that data. And, and so, uh, because that will then explain why there's so much angst uh, about policing. So, so those two types of uh, data analysis need to work together. You want that objective, those objective numbers so that maybe you can predict in the future with some mathematical model and also that people can get some baseline. But, but you also need to understand uh, the different experiences of people. On one hand, you know, I, I love tech. I love technology. I love reading about everything from, you know, Apple to Tesla to SpaceX. I love reading about really data-driven stuff, even if I myself could never go into a field like that because I, I just love like how 
beautiful numbers can be, whether you're talking about, you know, efficiencies in a system, like how do we build a better battery? And that's something kind of a similar thing that's drawn me to a lot of the work of Will Riley, right? I'm fascinated by that kind of computing that I don't really feel like my brain is suited for. And I kind of really enjoy seeing it all kind of laid out like that. But why I think that we need, you know, for every uh, Wilfred Riley, we need a Roderick Graham is because I think that people don't really, on a person to person level, people don't really respond to data. Right. Like, at least for me, like the way that I like to communicate is is kind of a very emotionally driven mm-hmm. communication, even if I, I love learning about numbers and I love seeing how they play out. And I think that I think that there can be a lot of truth in that sort of data. I don't think that that's how you win hearts and minds. I don't think that's how you I don't think really that. I mean, I, I think you can win some. I don't want to I want to give the, the the devil his due, I suppose. And when it comes to data, but mm-hmm. but when you're discussing something on a person to person basis, like it just it really doesn't fly because like you said, you're you're trying to have a conversation with someone who has had, and we'll touch on lived experiences right after this, because I think you give a really great distillation of what that term means. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds without kind of letting our listeners in on on kind of the the context of that phrase. But when you're talking with someone who, you know, and I, I've, I live in Los Angeles, I have a pretty diverse friend group. And when you try and <laughs> when you try and talk to someone about just like the hard numbers behind police shootings, like even if those numbers are true, and I, I have no reason to doubt that they are, it can ring really, it can ring like tin on the ear to someone who has been profiled or someone who has been pulled over repeated times. And maybe none of those instances have resulted in violence, repeated encounters with the police in which you are assumed to be potentially a criminal or you quote unquote looked like someone they were looking for. Like enough encounters like that can make the kind of data that might on the whole be assuring in some sense. It can, it can almost come off as offensive. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's right. It, 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 it will be callous because you're, you're uh, dismissing a person's experiences. Uh, absolutely. It's important to know, though, that, that that person's experience is data. It's just that it's hard to turn it into numbers. So sometimes when I'm speaking with people on Twitter and we get into these kind of conversations, I ask them, how would you like it? Like, how, how did you know that you thought your husband or wife liked you? Well, you didn't sit around and, and write some kind of algorithm or bring out a slide rule. You, Hopefully not. You collected information. <laughs> right, of course. But it wasn't like you were making that up. You, you, you observed. And even though you didn't put it down on paper as one, two, three, four, five, you were collecting that information. So it's still, it's just that I, I think in society, we've, we tend to put numbers on a higher plane um, when we probably shouldn't do that. We should see them as, as, as tools. And uh, we, we should see data as tools. And, and sometimes it can be very misleading because you've got in any uh, situation. So, so sometimes in my class, I, I, I do this. I teach a research methods class. And for full, dis- full disclosure, I'm a Wilfred Riley in a sense. I mean, I've got my tenure by doing data analysis. It's just that I'm, I've kind of moved on from that a little bit because I see the limitations. So I, I teach the class and I tell my students, all right, uh, you went on five dates and you struck out five times. I, so I, I guess I, I, I probably wouldn't have said it like that because with girls in the room, that, that, that doesn't quite fly. But you have to say that you, it didn't work well, right? So then I say, all right, let's talk for a little while about all the things that went into that. And they'll list uh, 50 things, like 50 reasons why these dates didn't go well, whether it be cultural differences, a bad joke, what have you. Every single one of those things can somehow be put into numbers. It's just hard. But all of those things matter more than any 
you know, coarse number you can put like, uh, you know, black or white or income's 50,000, income's 30,000. This is why they didn't work or something. And so those things matter equally, but we tend to put too much emphasis on the hard numbers. Well, I think it can depend on who you're talking to, right? Like, I think that there are, Mm -hmm. and you speak on this a little bit in your essay. I'm hoping, I don't have it in front of me. I hope I'm getting the name right. The Hard Bigotry of Soft Racism. Mm -hmm. You kind of discuss the the chasm between like two kinds of thinkers. You reference Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter. And um, there's there's a list of, of folks. I don't have it in front of me. But I think why it's so vital to have people from across the spectrum, you know, and people of all backgrounds, right? I don't think that all the onus on discussing either qualitative or quantitative data around issues of race should just fall onto people who happen to have black skin. I think that putting people in that position where they have to be, where they have to represent, you know, an entire portion of their community is unfair. But I do think that in some corners, and I I think that we really, we as people tend to line up in front of or behind people that are championing what we imagine is quote unquote our side, right? And so I think I think on and I think we we use that qualitative or quantitative data when it's helpful for our cause, which is why I, I find it rather. Oh, that's right. Yeah. When some people do it, I find it rather disingenuous because you, you'll, you'll see it on the left or the right. You'll see the right using quantitative data when it helps them or qualitative data when it helps them. They'll they'll say like, oh, look at the numbers, you know, look at look at the how the, the average income and incarceration rate like these are all trending. You know, one's trending down, one's trending up. Those are good things, right? But but then when it suits them, they'll use the qualitative data. Like, hey, we've brought the speaker to the RNC, and look, this is this is this guy, and he likes us, and all these other things. But I also see it happening a lot on the left, right? They'll use data when it comes to things like incarceration, or when it comes to mm-hmm. when it comes to things like police interactions, when it suits their side, and then they'll use qualitative data when it suits their side. <laughs> maybe maybe this is too big a question to ask any one individual, but. How do we have more healthy conversations around issues of data, around issues of qualitative and quantitative? Is there a way that we can detribalize this data in a way that can help all of us? You know, that's a, that, I've thought about that a lot. And you're right. That is a, that is a big question. First, it, it's important to point out that, so, so those are natural human tendencies. This is, a, this is confirmation bias, basically, you're, you're, you're pointing out. And it's, it's very difficult to deal with that because we all do it. You know, we, we have this idea in our head that we've, we've come to some conclusion or there's some idea that will benefit us. Either way, we've been taught something or, or we realize that some particular policy will benefit us over the other. Then we look for evidence for that. And that's, that's a very sticky problem. In a democratic society, I don't quite know if that's a, a big problem as, it, as many people make out. I think uh, if, you're, if you're in a multicultural society, that's somewhat inevitable. I, I think the issue is we don't get the nuance from the other side. So when, when we only consume data or just ideas from people who are like us, what we end up doing is we end up bastardizing the ideas from the other side or, or, or demonizing people on the other side. So then we have to negotiate, which is what it might be all about. We, we can't do it. It doesn't matter what I read on Twitter. It's, it's, it's highly unlikely that I'm going to come to a conclusion similar to someone who might say that there is little racism in the United States and it doesn't matter. I, I don't think I'll ever come to that conclusion. I, I think I've seen too much. And, but that doesn't mean, however, that that person isn't privy to some data, qualitative or quantitative, or experiences that can inform my thought process. So, so when it comes to the table to kind of work together and come to an agreement about something, if I don't have any idea what he's thinking, then I'm immediately going to dismiss him. And that's a problem. And it works at all levels. 
So like at, at my university, it's important that people talk to each other um, about different issues. It doesn't have to be something so racially charged. It, it could be just, you know, whether or not we should keep a, a certain major or something. If I'm in that major, I want to keep it. <laughs> Someone who's not in that major, they want to get rid of it. And so it's important that we talk about it. And then we go up to the city level and the state level. A lot of this is technology, man. It really is. It's kind of trendy to talk about how algorithms on Facebook and, and, and Twitter are polarizing us. But that's an accurate assessment. I mean, uh, it's, just, it's just quite clear. I mean, scholars are, are looking at this quite deeply. And it's, and it's quite clear that because they're trying to you know, keep you looking and, and keep you clicking, they're giving you the people and the ideas that fit what you already believe. And because everyone is online, it's making us more polarized. Oh, Rod, we could we could spend an entire conversation talking about how <laughs> I, I personally believe that social media is going to be the downfall of, of civilization. Like, I, I'm sure we probably all went through like a similar thought pattern, you know, like, let's say 15, 20 years ago, where the Internet is kind of in its relative infancy and social media is just beginning to kind of come around. And if your brain works anything like mine, I mean, I was thinking limitless information, uh, the ability to connect with anyone. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, like we're going to be unchained from just like three or four news stations or, or just the CNNs and just the MSNBCs. And we'll be able to to expand our minds and see so many different perspectives, you know, flash forward 10 years. And we're like walking through a hellscape. Anyway, I don't want to get us too far afield there, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. But before we get into in the weeds on the issue of, let's say, lived experience, I want to first reference this great video that you have on your YouTube channel, which is entitled Thinking Critically About Lived Experiences. I'll put the link in the show notes so that folks can take a look, and I recommend they do. But the term lived experience feels rather new in our lexicon, while also feeling like a rather old and rather natural concept. So what does lived experience mean? And how would it apply to us in our day-to-day lives? Wow, I wish I would have talked to you before uh, we were recording because I, I, I should go back and review that. But I think I, I remember in general what I said. So it's, it's an old idea. And uh, the idea with lived experience is to separate the symbolic thoughts that we have, which are experiences, from our sensory experiences. And I think the example that I used was wine, because I was probably drinking wine at the time where you can taste the wine and that's, that's one of your senses doing that. You can smell it, you can see it. And that's still data and you know, hard scientists would collect that information. But it's also the case that there are ideas in your head about the wine as well that may not be easy to put into numbers, but they, they, they matter. Um, they are experiences. So, so maybe you, you had a glass of wine on your first night out in the town or something. I don't know. So that's the initial idea is to separate these symbolic experiences, these meaningful experiences that are in our heads from sensory experiences, touch, taste, uh, smell, and, and these, I forgot about five of them. So, so that's the initial idea. Now, over time, what's happened is within academia, it's come to mean the significant experiences that a particular group Will, will, will experience, the, the, the experiences that matter to them. So if you are a white, poor person in Appalachia, there are certain connotations that you will know, certain things that may be a part of your life that would be incredibly foreign to a guy like me, who's also from the South, but, but uh, grew up in a primarily Black neighborhood. And so they would have lived experiences that, that structure how they see the world. Whereas my experiences will be different. And just to, I guess, keeping that white, black Appalachia uh, situation. I grew up during the crack era. So when I, so when crack is in my head, immediately I'll think about family members who were addicted to drugs. 
And that may produce in me a certain reaction about crack, which may lead to policy preferences or actions in life. Whereas when I hear meth, well, you know, I, I know of it in the abstract, but I don't, I don't have that experience. And I know I'm stereotyping a bit, but, but obviously that's uh, meth addiction and crack addiction tend to be concentrated more in different populations and areas of the country. So, so whereas that, that white person in poverty in Appalachia, well, they may have had a lived experience with meth, which is so powerful or significant enough that it will impact their lives. So within academia, we tend to focus on class, race, and gender. So we look at the lived experiences of racial minorities primarily, the lived experiences of women, which is a problem, I believe. Uh, Everyone has lived experiences. And then also sexual minorities. We look at their lived experiences. Yeah, I, I think that there is a lot to be learned from talking about lived experiences, but I feel like oftentimes on, on kind of a national or societal level, we have these discussions in rather unhealthy and reductive ways, right? Like I think if we talked about lived experiences in a more holistic manner, right? Like I think it's pretty uncontroversial to say that the lived experience that was primary throughout most of American history was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant lived experience, right? Which obscured, which obscured a lot of, of other experiences, right? Even within quote unquote, the white community, which is which is why, well, I, I could go on about why I think racial categorization actually obscures a lot of diversity within groups. But oftentimes when we talk about white, right, we're, we're not actually talking about Irish or Italians or Polish. We're talking about a very specific, tiny subset of what it quote unquote means to be white. And that lived experience was, you know, prime <laughs> when it came to American media. I would buy that. Yeah. When it came to American media, when it came to you know, comic books, television shows, movies, right? Like the, the the culture, the slang, the understandings that were assumed to be national or assumed to be universal didn't apply to a lot of people, right? Like um, in some ways there there are things that are universal, like comedy, slapstick. Sure. So I don't wanna I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I think oftentimes when we talk about lived experience in a modern context, we and I don't necessarily when I say we mean you and I, but we as a people, we don't understand that lived experiences have been kind of dictating what has been or has not been a narrative on a national or local level. Does that make sense? It does. Well, it's one of those concepts that uh, people find detestable. So they actually find lived experiences a problem. And we, we, we're still talking about that, I know. But it's, that is strongly connected with this idea of, of whiteness. So if you don't buy lived experiences, that, that somehow um, there's this waspish way of thinking for most of America, um, then you're not going to buy this idea of whiteness, that somehow being white means that you end up seeing the world differently than, than someone who is, who is non-white. And both of those ideas, uh, people, people have a, a, a problem with. You know, as you were talking, I'm thinking to myself that lived experiences are incredibly powerful in ways that people don't think about enough. A lot of the people who tend to not see race as an issue or women who may not see uh, sexism as an issue probably had very positive experiences with, with uh, interracial interactions. I, I'm thinking in my head about a lot of the, the black intellectuals who speak on these issues, the ones who tend to not see race as an issue. It just seems to me, and I, and I don't have any numbers here, but it seems to me that a, a large percentage of them may come from mixed race families, may be in a mixed race relationship, may, may have had these experiences growing up or in their formative years 
where race was not an issue. So then when you, you come at them with these ideas that racism matters, it's like, what are you talking about, dude? I, I mean, everything's hunky-dory. And, and so it, it's, hard to, it's hard to adjudicate what's true or not because of those um, uh, lived experiences. I would imagine that many white folks who grow up, let's say, in the Midwest and uh, have not had a lot of interracial contact may say, well, how is the world racist? It's just nothing, you know, I'm colorblind. I don't, I don't care anything about uh, one's race. And I'm sure that they mean that. I don't think people are disingenuous. But it's because they grew up in a situation where race didn't matter. And so they, they naturally come to that conclusion. I, I think that that's a good point. If you'll allow me some runway, I want to kind of talk on something that feels, that might feel adjacent to what we're talking about. But I think if I am articulate, that it will um, hopefully add something to the conversation. So my mom's side of the family is Armenian, came over here around 100 years ago after the genocide. Um, my dad's side of the family is, I guess you could say, you know, generic European white. And they, you know, they, they met, they got married, and, uh, you know, they're not, they're not that culturally dissimilar. And I think, I think some of that is because, you know, that both sides of their ancestral lines have been in America for quite some time. And I think that's kind of a natural process. But I, I want to kind of speak sensitively here uh, and, and do, do a little bit of obscuring in who I'm talking about to respect their privacy. But there's a member of my family on my father's side of the family who came from kind of a broken upbringing back in the, back in the 50s and 60s uh, in the Central California area, working class family, working class Catholic family. Uh, their dad couldn't really hold down a job either because of you know his, his, own, his own ego or uh, run-ins with his boss. And so their large family uh, ended up moving around a lot. And it caused a lot of chaos and a lot of uncertainty in this guy who was then a child in his, in his family. And this person that I'm talking about, his, you know, his dad couldn't hold down a job. His mom had uh, a lot of trouble with alcoholism. And there was this one story that this relative of mine recounted to me when I was like in my 20s. And all of a sudden, when he recounted to me that story, so much of his life made sense. So it was, you know, I think he was 12 or 13. And it was after his father had come home from losing or quitting another job, which usually meant that they would have to move again. And his mother pulled him and his brothers aside. And she was, you know, drunk at the time. And she said something that was meant to build her husband up. And she said this to her sons. She said, ah, man, huh, I didn't think I'd get emotional talking about it. But uh, she said, you'll, <clears throat> excuse me. She said, you'll never be half the man your father is. And, uh, excuse me, sorry, Rod. Mm -hmm. uh, someone I'm rather close to. So she said that, right, in an attempt to bolster her husband in a moment in which his you know, his children might perceive him as a failure, right? Mm -hmm. But the message that this relative of mine internalized was, if I'll never be half the man my father is, and my father can't take care of my family, then what kind of man am I going to grow up to be? Oh. And it had this, this experience had a cascading event through this, this person's life, right? It caused them to take nine years to get through college, and they were the first person in their family to go, because they were filled with so much self-doubt about their own abilities. It kept them in jobs as an adult where they were, you know, mentally uh, and psychologically abused. Um, it basically stunted a lot of this person's growth, you know, financial growth, personal growth, it, just echoes of pain from childhood that just kind of just transferred into the future. And so 
the way that that this person's life was affected by their own personal lived experiences had like a massive effect on how they perceived every other event that happened after that, right? Mm -hmm. And whereas someone who was raised in a healthy, functional home, uh, where they weren't uprooted every couple years, where they were able to make stable friendships, where they had confidence in themselves, where they weren't comparing themselves against a hero figure who was repeatedly failing them. It, it just had a massive effect on on everything they perceived mm -hmm. and how they perceive the world even today. There's kind of a, I would say, a, a, a kind of an underlying cynicism that can sometimes affect how they view events that, let's say, I will view and not see anything there. And I fear that what quote unquote identity politics or what the idea of lived experiences can do when we talk about it sloppily. Well, let me just recount kind of an experience I had when I was kind of running in these kind of liberal quote unquote anti-racist circles a few years ago. It wasn't uncommon for me to hear that because I was half Armenian, that I understood struggle mm, yeah. um, and that my father's side of the family, where this relative is from, could never understand that, right? Because they were a paler hue. Um, whereas my Armenian side of the family was anywhere from brown to olive, right? But all I would have to tell them is like, hey, my experiences with wealth as a kid were visiting my multimillionaire Armenian relatives. Now, my mom isn't rich, but a lot of her relatives are very wealthy. And a lot of the experiences that I had with rural poverty, you know, with ATVs and shotguns and, you know, high school only education happened on my father's side of the family. And I worry that when we talk about people as groups, and I don't think that's what's happening here, but I think in a larger societal sense, what I fear happens is when we talk about people as groups, that we end up obscuring a lot of very personal individual stories, and, and we can make them into larger groups like white, black, Latino, Asian, when really I feel like that just, it's like a story without content. Am I, am I making sense here? I, I appreciate the, the time you gave me to kind of expand on that. And I, hopefully it's relevant. No, sure, man. I, I, I think you're right. I mean, you can be white and have an individual experience that uh, is unique and there's no need to reduce that to whiteness. It's just you as an individual having an experience or or half Irish or, or and half Italian, what have you, or black or something. So, no, absolutely, you're right. I mean, sometimes people use these experiences sloppily, as you said, um, bluntly, maybe. I think it's the, the desire is so much to reach a political goal that they don't, they don't necessarily care so much about how accurate the idea is, that the, the idea can be used to reach a, to reach a, a certain end. Um, I, I've heard that before, actually, about obviously not the specific Armenian and um, uh, Eastern European, or I, I forgot what the other one you said. Not that, of course, but, but this idea that, okay, you can't understand struggle because you're not black or you're not uh, Hispanic, this type of thing. Um, and obviously, that's, that's incorrect. I mean, on the face of it, it's, it's incorrect. I mean, that, 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 that's an issue. It, it really is. So, on the other hand, if I may complicate things a bit... Because I think two things can be true. Um, you can have individuals who are different within a population, so much so that maybe they don't fit that population. But you can also have, at a broad level, people who tend to think similarly about something. And so, and so the question would be, at a policy level, you know, is it worthwhile to worry about the identity or not? And so... It, it makes no sense, I think, to, and I don't want to piss off any Italian people, but it makes no sense now to, to focus on Italian-American identity. Or I should say it another way. It makes less sense to focus on Italian-American identity 
than it does uh, black identity because the, the the individuals within that Italian population are so varied now that um, sure they they will certainly say you know I'm Italian I identify as Italian but 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 they may not share a, a similar idea or similar life experience a hundred years ago they would and it and it would make sense in fact I remember when I was in New York City uh, working my way through graduate school the affirmative action boxes that um, you checked it had Italian. Uh, American in, as one of the boxes, um, because I think in that particular context, uh, uh, Italian Americans were an identifiable group. There are enough people that shared the same life experiences for it to matter. Whereas probably outside of that, oh, forget it. You know, uh, it may not matter that much. I think both sides are right. I, I think the difficulty, or, or where, or I guess I should say, when one side is really wrong, is when they they use the notion of lived experiences to silence another person. And uh, that, that does happen, uh, unfortunately, way too much. Um, I, I teach a, a racial inequality class, and it's very difficult to get students, to white students, to talk about race. One, because if, if, they, if they disagree with the general ethos of the class, then they fear they will be seen as racist, which is a, a different issue, but just as serious. And second, they will, uh, more to your point, they, they, maybe a black student will say, well, how in the world can you talk about this? You're not black, right? Which then blunts the entire conversation. So yeah, it's, it's quite difficult. If I can relate something, uh, though, uh, that happened to me recently on Twitter, which actually disheartened me. It's one of the few times you started by saying that I'm, I'm very congenial on Twitter and I am, but this was one of the few times where I thought, <laughs> I thought I would lose my cool, but I didn't, I, I held on. So th- th- there was this um, woman, this Indian woman, who just does some really far left stuff. And so, and so a lot of people were responding to her. But, but, but she made a point about her parents telling her to stay out of the sun uh, so that she wouldn't be too dark. And then she made a point that, you know, whiteness or white America chokes us or, or something of that nature. And so I immediately related to that. I'm a dark-skinned black man, and um, I think now it's probably different, especially for men. I don't know about women, but for men, it's different. But for me, growing up in the '80s, being dark-skinned wasn't good. It it was a it it could be used as an insult as being gay or being overweight or or something. I mean, it was not a good thing, and I knew it, and I didn't like it. And my mother knew it, and and she would actually tell me the same thing: stay out of the sun. So so that experience was very powerful to me, and it took me a long time. Uh, to get over that. And who knows, maybe I'm still not, you know, if I sat on the couch, the, the, a psychiatrist would tell me I'm still not over it. But, um, and so I post that on Twitter. And then because people couldn't relate, they were trying to explain this. <laughs> like they were trying to give me these counter arguments to this idea. I'm like, no, dude, this is about race. Uh, bl- black folks knew that the closer you'd get to whiteness, it probably was better. And, and so this was not something that was up to debate. They couldn't speak to my experiences, no matter how much they tried to use logic. To, to, to get to it. And so at that point, and, and, and maybe that's because it was personal, I was a little upset. So I guess in a roundabout way, I think both sides can be right, that individuals matter, but it's also the case that there's some group experiences that people can't share. I think this might speak to the fact that I am too online, but I actually know exactly what, <laughs> what instance you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you are you're online um, too much then. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm far too online. But if I can just el- elaborate the point that I was kind of making in my semi-autobiographical ramble there. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it, this is how it was received, but I kind of want to articulate it for the listener. What I wasn't attempting to do was kind of say like, oh, well, 
you know, black Americans don't have the only claim to suffering because white Americans suffer too. That line of argument that actually doesn't really appeal to me. And I don't find it actually very productive. Um, and, I, and it kind of feels like an all lives matter. What about ism to me? But what I was attempting to do there was to shine a light on what might be motivating differences between black intellectuals, let's say, and, and what may cause them to reach the conclusions that they reach that may have nothing to do with, let's say, interracial marriage rates or even a higher rate of positive interactions between the races, right? It could be a completely different underlying set of circumstances that might be due to parental upbringing, the stories they heard as, oh, as, as children, oh, or, or even just how, even naturally how people of different psychological dispositions respond to different sets of stimuli. And for me, and I think, I think it kind of runs in my, my father's side of the family, unfortunately, but I struggle with depression a lot. Cognitive behavioral therapy has been very helpful for me. There's been medication that's been involved that has also helped with kind of like chemical imbalances and stuff. But I've become very aware that there are certain times where I honestly can't even trust my own brain, right? Like I can't even necessarily trust that the interaction that I'm having with a dear friend is, is necessarily even tethered to reality. I want to be sensitive. I want to be, I want to be hypersensitive to, in terms of what I'm saying here um, in that what I'm talking about is a hyper-localized instance of what I'm going through. And my larger point is more that how one perceives events, you know, in my instance is related sometimes to mental illness, but in others can be related just to personal experiences or stories that they heard through friends or family um, that then influence interactions that they have in the real world. Oh, yes. I, I think that's the root... I mean, that that's actually what happens. But uh, so I, I hope we're on the same lines here. I think that at the individual level, what's happening is that certain populations are experiencing uh, similar things, which then leads to what might appear to be some or, or what is actually a group level phenomenon. But I don't know. I, I'm still not sure if that's what you're getting at. But that but that's what I, what I picked from that, well, which is absolutely uh, true. I mean, ultimately, we're talking about individuals. It's just that they have similar patterns, which leads us to, to think of them as groups. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in, in, my, in my semi-articulate way, I think one of the goals that I have with this podcast and just, I guess you could say my only goal is I hope that we can come to see each other in, in this interview and in every interview we have. The message to listeners is that I think it's so much more healthy while understanding that different groups in America have had fundamentally different experiences because they've been grouped against their will. Um, they've been put into buckets. They've been put into racialized groups against their will, right? And I think that's true of both Black Americans and white Americans, right? Like uh, Italians and Irish came over and they were drafted into <laughs> the, the white race. And, I, you know, a friend of mine um, who is of Asian descent, you know, said there are no Asians in Asia. To become Asian is something that happens to you when you move into a predominantly non-Asian population. And similarly, like race is really something that happens to you, not something that you inherently have, you know, while race is real and that it is something that functions on a societal level and happens to all of us, right? Like I am just going to be categorized as white as I walk down the street, as you are going to be categorized as black as you walk down the street. What I'm trying to do in my own day-to-day -day life and the conversations that I'm trying to encourage are that hopefully if we can get enough people to talk to one another as individuals and try and short circuit that part of their brain that just automatically says, oh, because you are black, you must X, Y, Z, or because you are white, you must X, Y, Z, or because you are Asian or Hispanic, X, Y, Z, A, B, C. And I, I feel that if we can get there, it doesn't mean that we have to 
disregard the very real experiences that affect American descendants of slaves, for instance, or the different ways that white Americans are treated because they are racialized as white. But I'm hoping that we can drill down to an individual level so that even though those experiences happen on group levels, that doesn't mean we have to then apply those group dynamics to individuals. I see. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that that is the hope, I think, that uh, most of us have. And hopefully your podcast can can help do that. You mentioned that you wanted to talk a little bit about critical race theory. And one of the issues that people have, and I have to some extent, is that the onus is always on white folks to, to the black folks talking and white folks listening. And I'm not entirely sure that that's, that that's the right way to go. You know, and I, and I kind of understand the, the, the theoretical or the historical reasons for that. Uh, historically, I think it was the other way around. And so it's meant to kind of deal with that issue. But there's theory and then there's the practical issue here of two people just need to sit down uh, as equal as you can make them and then and then talk. And that would probably go a long way towards dealing with many of the issues that we have. And, and we're talking race here, but it doesn't have to be because it could be a, a Trump supporter and a Biden supporter. It doesn't matter. But, but that's what's needed. Yeah. To take, it, to take it away from race for a, a brief moment, there was an example that you used in that video on lived experience that I kind of want to mm-hmm. expand on a bit. How do we create a society where the distance between lived experiences, right, between men and women, for instance, or between people of different racial or ethnic groups is smaller? There was an example that you made in the video where you were discussing the potentially equally valid viewpoints of a man and a woman in a scenario where a man is, let's say, trying to make uh, an earnest pass at a woman in a bar, and the woman perceives that pass as if she's being harassed. Mm -hmm. And with the way that norms kind of organically shift in society, that same woman may have felt differently about that interaction only a few years prior, or the man may have approached her differently a few years later. That's right, yeah. Even though they're living in the same society, they might just be a few years apart in terms of the norms that they're practicing. So to me, it feels like the best way to more closely align lived experiences between genders, between races, between ethnic groups, between socioeconomic groups, is to try and create a more shared and readily identifiable cultural norm but I mean, that's just one thing that I'm thinking mm-hmm. off the top of my head. Like, how do you think that we can get to a place where the lived experiences between understandably different populations or different individuals can be more closely aligned so that I see what you see or you see what I see or when I say a word, you understand it as I intended? I see. Well, OK. So first, I would say shared spaces matter. When, when people are communicating with each other, then, then that necessarily humanizes people. So I don't know if that translates well to the man in the bar, but uh, when it comes to other differences, um, I, I think that shared spaces, communicative spaces matter, and we don't, we don't necessarily have that. So that, that's kind of hard to deal with. That's the first thing. But it's also the case that I think many people, including myself and, and many academics, would, would argue that if, uh, if there are lived experiences, if there are differences in perception, then the best way to deal with that is to acknowledge the differences and come to an agreement and understanding of those differences. And then in a democratic society, then you, you then express those differences through, through the vote or something. So I don't know if coming together and erasing those differences, I, I know you didn't say it that way, but, but I think that's the, the end point, right? Erasing those, those differences in perception. I, I'm not sure if that is entirely possible only because women live in a different environment. Um, and that's not going to change. 
So you have no choice but to accept that that people are going to come to slightly different understandings of the world. It's just that what we have to do is acknowledge those experiences and develop democratic ways of negotiating between them, which is what a democracy is. I mean, we, we started to, we kind of set this up initially as identity politics. And in my head, you know, I, I had already thought about what would be important. And, and I, was, I was going to say that in a multicultural democratic society, I don't see identity politics as necessarily bad. In fact, I think that they are a necessity because if you try to have it so that everyone sees the world the same, it starts to border on erasing other people's experiences. So the, so the, the people living in, in the Northwest and in, in Portland and Oregon and Washington, they, they have their own kind of way, I would imagine. Again, this is generalities. But, but you don't want to then have someone in D.C., you know, trying to tell them how to live. And that, that's, a, that's a source, but that, that happens all the time. Through history, there's been this argument between states' rights or localities and the federal government. And I tend to think that ultimately it, it should be individuals in their local environment, or, or we should at least acknowledge what they're doing in their lived experiences. So I, I'm okay with those differences. I think they're fine. We just have to find a way to negotiate some kind of truce between those uh, groups, which I think is a democracy. There was something that a previous guest, Zed Jelani, was talking about when it came to sort of adjudicating differences. And, and I think one of the things that he proposed was to look at groups as similar on a local level, right? Which I think federalism could be a wonderful solution to the way that we are sort of talking about issues of race or class or ethnic difference in the United States today. Because I totally agree with you. A white person or a black person in Berkeley, California is going to be entirely dissimilar from someone in Washington, D.C. or Nantucket or Baltimore or Kentucky, right? And yet, I think because of social media or national media, we put folks in buckets because they happen to to have like similar looking faces, <laughs> like on a broad scale, when really, I would say two individuals, at least from similar socioeconomic backgrounds living in Berkeley, have much more in common than they do, regardless of skin tone, than two people of the same skin tone living in another part of the country. And I think that there's like a, a, a fundamental error that's being made when we talk about people as groups in that way, as if by my very nature, I have a similar experience to a, a blue blood in Maine, when I really would have no idea. You know, I've had opportunities. I don't even know if I would call them opportunities. I've had situations where I've run in those groups, right? Usually for work events. And I feel foreign. I honestly feel as like someone from like a middle class uh, Californian background. Mm -hmm. I feel othered when I'm in environments of predominantly old money white people. I just, I don't feel like I belong, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I wonder if even if we can't create in a, in a common culture, and I don't think we should, I completely agree with you. I think there's something really unique and American about you can travel state to state or, or region to region and experience an entirely different America that is still somehow still uniquely American. I, I want to preserve that. I think we all do. But I'm wondering if at least on a local level, we can begin to see each other more as brothers and sisters regardless of our of our background, because I, I think in many ways we are. Like I, I just share much more in common culturally with Californians than I would with, no offense meant, to Virginians, right? Like they're great people, but there's just an entirely different code there. I think that uh, the, the future, uh, if we want to think positively, would be a situation where we would have a lot of regional diversity, which is fluid, uh, a lot of economic diversity, which means that we're dealing with merit, and we deal less with uh, the racial diversity, which is, is rigid. 
you're you're kind of put in a bucket, as you said, and that's something that you don't uh, you are given, you ascribe that, and you don't you don't necessarily achieve that. So uh, we we kind of want a society of achievement. So yeah, I think that would be wonderful, and it would keep the the beauty of America um, intact. Just to go back to that lived experiences thing a a, a bit um, for your listeners, my experiences communicating on social media about this is that if people deny those lived experiences, it it is quite dangerous. And what I mean by that is, let's say you've got someone, some group of people who are consistently saying, okay, this is what's happening to me. And I think this is unfair. Uh, So maybe Hispanic Americans in Arizona are saying, look, I'm being dehumanized because uh, police are constantly stopping me and asking me for my ID, right? If you're not in that area and you imagine that maybe you can look at some some bivariate tables, uh, some data points, and and someone is telling you that, well, actually, no, they're stopping people at the same rate, then 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 you don't have any conception that that maybe they're experiencing something experiencing something different. So you can just dismiss them, and it, and it becomes a kind of erasure of that uniqueness. I guess I, I, I didn't want to leave that, <laughs> that part of the conversation without, without making that clear that, that, those, that acknowledging those lived experiences is, is incredibly democratic uh, and very incredibly humanizing. Uh, uh, so, um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. But eventually, yes, I, I agree. I, it would be nice if we can get to those achieved differences or fluid differences so we don't have a, a, that kind of caste system in society. I'm glad that you did touch on that because I think it is very instructive. And I think that being able to share those stories and being able to receive those stories in a healthy way in which, in which the person who's receiving it isn't assumed to be acting in bad faith or the person who's giving it isn't assumed to be acting in bad faith. I think that that's such a healthy thing to, to have. And I think that in many ways we have those kinds of conversations with our friends all the time. Although sometimes, especially if they're cross-gender or cross racial, sometimes those those conversations don't always go as well as they could. I do think that one of the positive things that's coming about as a result of, you know, the change that's being fought for right now. And I've noticed this with with a lot of my friends, you know, a lot of my a lot of my white friends. I'm, I'm trying to be polite, but I guess you could say they're trying to they're, they're sort of waking up to things that they might have once ignored. And I think that that is I think that that's important. I, I keep hammering this point, but I actually think that one of the ways, and this is just my, <laughs> the, the, the humble, you know, worryings of my brain as I try and crunch these issues. Like, I, I really do think that one way that we can get white, and I, every time I talk about race, I, I'm, I, like in my mind, I'm just using like heavy air quotes because I, I just find them like reductive. But I think one way to get people who are, you know, categorized as white to better understand the value of lived experiences is to understand that the lived experience that again was propagated in society wasn't really diverse that there is so much diversity within quote unquote white america and that being able to talk about lived experiences can also be very freeing for them right like it can be freeing for a jewish american to be able to talk about their lived experience and how it might not have been covered in the mainstream or not, might not have been featured or the reason that martin scorsese's movies were such a milestone when they first started coming out right whether it was mean streets or Raging Bull or Goodfellas, right? One of the reasons that those films had such amazing cultural impact is because he was giving voice to a community that was either not listened to or whenever they were portrayed, they were portrayed in really kind of derogatory or throwaway ways, right? Like in film school, 
we had, <laughs> I mean, it's almost, it's almost ridiculous to think about now, but in film school, there were like movies about Italian gangsters in like the 1930s or forties. And they were really just used as props. And it's like, in, it's like inherently dehumanizing. Right. Hmm. And so I, I think that when we, when we talk about lived experiences, I think in my own, you know, just a dude on a podcast sort of way, I think that if we can show people that when we're talking about lived experiences, that also means that we're allowing you to talk about ways in which you and your family and your ancestral history hasn't really been portrayed accurately or perhaps even at all because you've been captured under this umbrella of whiteness that has really obscured you. I think that that, that could be helpful. That is interesting. So I guess, look, every podcast needs some conflict. So we, we've been uh, agreeing maybe too much. So let me, let me, let me disagree a bit. Please do. <laughs> I, I think that um, one of the problems with that analysis, it's not really a problem, it's just that even if a person is a white immigrant uh, and they do have unique ancestry and unique histories, uh, especially Italians and Americans or, or any, any uh, uh, European immigrant who moved into an enclave that's going to give you those experiences automatically uh, over time, it's still the case that a lot of sociologists would argue, and I argue, that they're still white. And what that means is a lot of the issues that we're dealing with today, they're not dealing with. So, so, so there's the historical lived experiences that certainly that's worth uh, talking about, and they should talk about them. I mean, post-1950, the whatever racial or discrimination or prejudices that European immigrants had were, were really um, minimal. Whereas for Black Americans, they, they, they continued uh, to this day, although to a lesser degree. And so a lot of the experiences that Black folk are talking about are not those ancestral experiences that you're talking about. They're, they're talking about being noticeably Black, uh, or noticeably different in a white space and what that means. Or being, as I was, growing up in a wealth, poor, not just family, uh, nuclear family, but also extended family and also neighborhood and and not just that, but not having any connection to any white collar jobs. Like, like, what does that even mean? Like, you know, and that's very rare uh, across the white population. I know that might might piss off some listeners because they'll say, well, in my case, you know, I, I knew nobody in my home, in my uh, family who ever had a job that was over that required a college degree. OK, maybe that happens. But in black families, that happens a lot. And that's an experience that uh, is important to know or the experience of um, so, in my case, I can make it uh, a personal as, as personal as I can. There are many people who are the first to go to college, and in my case, I went to an HBCU, so I don't have much to say negative about that. There was obviously no racism there, and maybe some colorism, but no racism there. But then, when I went off to graduate school, I was the only black person in the class. Okay, so that that's not that's not like the end of the world because because people are good and nice in the US. I, I don't think that that people are 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 out to get you. Not, not really. I think people just try to take care of themselves. So they they didn't necessarily care that I was black so much, but because there's so many stereotypes around blackness, this actually mattered. You know, I got the sense that okay, they thought that I wasn't necessarily that bright, right? Like I wasn't you know, like I was maybe some kind of scholarship kid or something like that and and so, you know, when going to work with people they may not have been so comfortable, or even just even if they thought that I was uh, someone who was intelligent, it's still the case that there's a coldness, which has been documented all the time, where because of other experiences, like maybe at the University of South Carolina, as many colleges are, there, there's often a ring of, of urban blight around those colleges. Okay, so a, a student has to navigate that. And so 
it's black people uh, who are in that area and they are committing crimes. And so, you know, the, the students are worried about that. So it can be hard for them to just distinguish between what's going on in that urban ring and me. And so it creates a, a kind of coldness and it can be very difficult to to then overcome that and, and develop those friendships. They do happen because people finally, once you get to know them, went up, but it's just that much more difficult. And, and those kinds of experiences may not necessarily be shared or those same types of experiences may not necessarily be shared with the white population. I know you were looking for disagreement, but I don't disagree with anything you said. <laughs> I mean, I think that I think that everything you said is we could try. No, I, I, <laughs> that'd be great. We just spend like three hours attempting to disagree. No, I think that um, I think that everything you said is completely spot on. And I think what you said is 100% accurate. I think it's a I think it's a yes and right. Like um, if you've ever taken like an improv class, one of the tenets of good improv is like yes and. And once you know what yes and means you can spot bad improv like right away. Let me give you an example, or I guess an example to our listeners who don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. The principle of yes anding someone would be like, let's say you and I were in an improv scene, Rod, and you started off first, right? And you were like, man, it, it sure is stormy today. We better go seek cover. And then like I said, actually, Rod, it's perfectly sunny out. What are you talking about? Have you lost your mind? That would bring an improv scene to a screeching halt because you set up a scenario and then instead of yes anding you, which would have been, oh my gosh, you're, you're right. And my umbrella's broken. What are we going to do? I'm locked out of my car, right? I've yes anded your situation. And then I've added a layer on top of it. And then ideally you would yes and me and then I would yes and you. Oh, that's interesting. And that is often the, the difference between really good improv, people who can think not only quick on their feet, that's one particular skill, but be able to yes and someone to build on what they're saying. And so I think that what you said just now is a, a perfect example of like a yes and in that I think that the experiences of black Americans, and I really think one of the best things that we can do in our society, just from a personal level, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, is I, I really think we need to hammer home the very distinct experiences of American descendants of slaves. Because I think that when we talk about the black experience, we're, it's not entirely useless in, in comparing like, let's say, a, a recent Nigerian immigrants experience and, and in terms of how they're racialized versus someone who can trace their ancestral lineage back, you know, 400 years, let's say. Mm -hmm. But I do think that those those populations are distinct. And I think that the prescriptions that can help either community are also incredibly distinct. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So um, that's just a, that's just a bit of a, a bit of a side note. But yeah, I think everything you said about your experiences in, in comparison to your experiences with an HBCU versus a college in which you were the, you know, the only black attendee in your class, I, I think that that's incredibly valuable and something that we need to talk about because I don't feel like the average person who is part of a majority, however that majority manifests itself, right, in, in different countries, whether mm -hmm. it's a religious majority, an ethnic majority, in this case, a racial majority, I, I think it's almost impossible for someone who lives in a majority to understand what it means to be othered on a constant day-to-day -day basis through no fault of their own, and only because they don't share whatever that commonality and the commonality is fluid, right? It's the, the commonality that makes the majority is different in America versus Iraq versus <laughs> China. But there, there is something incredibly valuable about people who have been othered constantly being able to share what that experience is like. So I just want to make sure that I'm not taking away from, I think, what is a very important point that you made. Yeah. And you know what? I've had an experience. So yes, I'm already othered in many situations, at least initially, by my race. But you know, I 
So at my university, we've decided to move in a direction within uh, the criminology department of making it about uh, queer criminology, which I don't know much about. Um, but that meant that we've had to hire um, several people who are LGBTQIA, uh, one of those, and because they tend to study those issues a bit more. Okay, so I'm, I'm finding myself now in situations where it's like, oh, I, I'm, I'm heterosexual. Like I would have never thought about that, but I'm finding that we're in when we're in meetings, the conversation is moving in a direction that seems to be something I would have never have been concerned about, right? Like, like I, I would not have thought, okay, you know, we we we've got uh, um, some kind of event coming up, and and I, in my head, I would not be thinking, well, let's make sure that we that we focus on the queer community or this, this new queer issue has popped up. So we have to discuss it here. That that's not my experience. And so, and so in some ways, and I have to be critical of myself, my first reaction has been, this is not interesting. Like this is what's in my head. And so I imagine that this is often what happens if you've got several um, Hispanic or black or Asian people trying to talk about these racial issues and white folks saying, well, this is not really interesting here. This is not the, the point. We need to talk about something else. And so I, I think that's a universal human thing. I even had it with my graduate student. He, he, he wanted to do something on, um, on uh, education and poverty, but he kept trying to throw in information about, he's gay. He kept trying to throw in information about homosexuality. And I said, dude, this is not a part of it. But what he had done is because he has that identity, he had been reading that literature on the relationship between being poor and gay and being poor and straight. And apparently uh, gay kids drop out of school more because they're excluded. So he wanted to talk about that. And so that experience has made me even more aware of what white folks probably are experiencing sometimes. That's a Really interesting point. And I wonder if the kind of acceleration of the concepts and topics around intersectionality could be a potential gateway to allow people of all sorts of different backgrounds to understand what it feels like to be both in the minority and majority, depending on what the context is, and how that could potentially lead to more empathy across groups. Yes, uh, I think that's important. It would be because most, if you actually sat down and talked with anyone who's advocating for uh, racial equality or talk about systemic racism a lot, as I do, um, or, or any of these uh, identity issues and, and ask them, okay, do you really think that, that this person is hell bent uh, on uh, excluding you or irredeemably homophobic or something? They'll, they'll say, no, not really. They're probably making just some, some, uh, uh, unintentional actions that may damage me, but they're not uh, intentionally trying to cause problems. And so we kind of know that. And it would be important if we if we would kind of put ourselves in that situation or be in that situation and, and see that, okay, most people are just human. I mean, they're just trying to get on with their day. And if they happen to not think about your issues, it's not, it's not because it's uh, ill intent. So I, we're reaching the, the end of our conversation, but I'm wondering if, if you have enough time, there's this idea around the metaphor of sports. I don't know if you watch sports at all. I, I don't at all. But I'm wondering if, if you have the time. I'd love to kind of throw it by you and just get, get your thoughts on it. Um, I do watch sports. I don't know this metaphor, though. <laughs> I just thought it up. So I'm, I'm curious. So you brought up the topic of policing earlier, which I think is, you know, for obvious reasons in 
in the news, part of the national dialogue right now. And I think it's a healthy discussion that we need to have. And there's a lot of reforms that I'm hoping happen. But I wonder if one of the reasons it may be difficult to see potential progress in policing, right? Like there was a stat that I read that uh, police shootings in New York City are down like 700% since the 1970s. One of the reasons it might be difficult to see progress is for the same reason people like sports teams for like decades. (laughs) And and I know that this sounds like a strange comparison. So I'll need just a, a little bit of runway here. Like I said, I don't really like sports. I don't watch them. I played some basketball and, and baseball, but then I hit my teens and my interests changed. I got into like journalism and debate and stuff. And I, I left my, my baseball glove behind me. But one thing that I find funny about sports is that you're basically at the core of it rooting for a uniform. A buddy of mine is obsessed with the Yankees, right? He's a huge fan of the dynasty. You know, he can quote statistics from like the 1940s, but nobody who was in the Yankees in 1950 is in the Yankees now. Like no one who was in the Yankees in 1995 is on the team now. And sports teams are like the ship of Theseus, you know, the boat looks the same, but all the parts are constantly being swapped out. So you can never really tell where the old boat began and the new and the new boat is because everything is just being replaced bit by bit. And so in essence, when it comes to sports, you're just rooting for uniforms. You're, you're cheering for an idea that is sort of entirely fabricated, right? Like the idea of the Yankees is a fiction, as if there is a continuation between 1920 and 2020 that moves beyond the fact that their uniform has some stripes on it. And so I wonder if progress on policing, the drastic drop in police shootings in New York City since 1970, is masked by a similar psychological phenomenon. All the trigger-happy cops in 1972 are either retired or dead. And yet there are folks out there who experienced very real violence and corruption who then passed on that incredibly real, valid experience and passed that data along to their children or to their, their grandchildren. But the Yankees have been swapped out like five or six times since 1970. Interesting. And so um, I wonder if that metaphor holds. And I wonder if thinking behind why we cheer for sports teams as if they're one continuous thing can also blind us to progress when everyone's wearing the same uniform. Okay, I, I get the idea of like this kind of cultural continuity uh, because you're right. I mean, you get a new cop uh, into a, a precinct and he'll take on the uh, values and the culture of people who came before. And those people may have been in a you know, a much more violent era, and they're passing that down to the young cop. Okay, I get that, and that that I think that's that's correct. Uh, but but I don't get to, to some extent. But I don't get the the other part of it. The rooting, like we're rooting for a uniform. I don't I don't know. Just in terms of in terms of how the human mind conceptualizes people who wear similar outfits and then puts them onto a bucket as if they are the same. Right. So obviously we're rooting for a sports team. We're not necessarily some most people aren't necessarily rooting for cops. But what I mean is that we see someone wearing a Yankee uniform and instantly our mind ties them to other people wearing that uniform who really have nothing to do. I mean, like the tactics could be different. The way the coaches treat the team, the style of play. Hell, the Mm -hmm. the um, the stadium might be entirely different. So I just wonder if there's a similar psychological phenomenon that can mask progress, right? Like I I just remember being completely shocked by the amount of shootings that were happening in New York City in 1970. I saw it on Twitter. It was like, it was like insane. Like it was like hundreds of shootings. Like most of them were non-fatal, but a lot were. But then you see like the the stats in, you know, 2018, you you look at the graph and like you almost can't even see the number because the number in 1970 was so high. 
But I'm, I'm wondering if because we think of uniforms or because we think of groups as part of a continuum, which I think is like a I think it's a kind of a fallacy. I don't that that doesn't exist. I wonder if that can potentially blind us to progress. OK, I think I understand. But progress in terms of better policing, because there has been there is better policing. Yes. OK, yeah. No, absolutely. That, that, that might be true. I mean, it's first off, in general, we live in a less violent world than we've we've ever lived in. And yes, the amount of violent crimes have dropped uh, quite a bit. In fact, uh, when I talk about cybercrime, that's the first thing I do is I show the two uh, trend lines, cybercrimes up, violent crimes down, street crimes down. Um, and it's also the case, at least as I understand it, I don't have data on this, that um, the way that, that policing is done is much better, not just the shootings, but even, even how they interact with people. So you might be, you might be right. I mean, we're sitting here uh, because we now have cameras to record everything. Uh, and also our standards are higher. Our, our standards are, are much higher now than uh, 30, 40 years ago. But, but those two things together, you know, we're, we're sitting here, you know, tying ourselves up in knots about these things. Um, but in actuality, we're probably doing better than we, we ever have. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, may, maybe you're right. It's, we, we're looking at the uniform, but, but the policing practices are different. Uh, you know, the, the behaviors are a lot different. Cops are better trained. So, yeah, um, absolutely. It's important, though, and I make this analogy all the time. It may be unfair with you. I don't know. But um, we'll, we'll see. So um, people will, will argue that, you know, racism is less now. And I'll say, absolutely. And this is the best time to be a person in the, alive, <laughs> black or white, in my opinion. Uh, um, well, I don't know. I mean, uh, incomes are, are starting to drop. But in general, I mean, we, we tend to be making progress as a human species. So uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, come on. I mean, I live, a, I have a pretty good life here. So, but, but that doesn't mean that uh, there aren't things to fix. You, that person who makes that argument that racism is less now, and so we should not worry about it, is making the argument where uh, a husband has been beating on his wife for two decades. And, and so two decades later, when he's old and tired, and his wife says, stop beating me. And he says, well, look, you know, now I'm only hitting you once a day. It used to be five. Well, you still want the hit and the stop. It's still wrong, right? And so, um, and, and that, that might be an unfair to what you're saying, actually. But I do try to use that extreme example for some people online who were talking about systemic racism and racism not being important. So, so it, yes, it is absolutely the case that policing is better now and um, much better, uh, really. But that doesn't mean, though, that people aren't still concerned about the, the disproportionate impact that policing has on black communities. I should say, I, I, there, there's a very famous book um, that's getting old now. It's the uh, New Jim Crow. Maybe you've heard about it from Michelle Alexander. Yes. And, um, you know, she makes the argument that, well, you know, we're locking up more people now. So it, it might be that the or we were. But the era of mass incarceration, as I understand it, is, is over. You know, she made this argument that in the 80s and 90s, we we're just locking up more people now than we ever had. We we're over 2 million, 2.1 million people in jail, which is more, which is, I, I think, uh, empirically accurate. Like there's more people in total and as a percentage of the population than ever in U.S. history. So even if the policing practices are better, which I agree with, and, and we may be fighting a bit of a boogeyman, it's still the case that there's some things that we, that we need to work on. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, yeah, I, I. Well, can you disagree? Can, can I, I find... we do something to kind of, you know, disagree on something? I don't know. <laughs> I wish, <laughs> you know, maybe that, maybe, maybe in the, in the sequel, when I have you on again, I'll try and, I'll try and, I'll try and really find, find areas. I mean, I, I think that problems are solved when we use holistic 
approaches, right? When we can acknowledge that progress has been made, and I, and I don't think we disagree there, like, mm-hmm. but also realize that there's still a ways, and in some ways, a long way to go, right? I think it's, um, trying to think of the correct analogy here. With terms of like technology, for instance, this feels like a weird comparison, but there's the idea of like low-hanging fruit mm-hmm. where where like the easiest stuff is like the stuff you can just grab really quickly, right? Like, oh, like let's upgrade the screen, you know, like let's make it so you can copy and paste on your iPhone, which, you know, if you had an iPhone or a smartphone like in 2007 or 2008, like the idea of being able to like copy some text from, you know, your web browser and then like paste it into your notepad, it seemed impossible, right? I don't think they even did it until like 2010 or 2011. But as technology progresses, and once all that low-hanging fruit is gone, those final technological achievements get harder and harder because the amount of progress you can make gets smaller and smaller. And as you approach, Hmm. let's say, 100% technological achievement, the distance to get from 1% to 99% is easier than getting from 99% to 100%. And I think that 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 can also apply to to things like progress in policing or other elements of our society where like the low hanging fruit of like, don't just fire willy nilly at people <laughs> when you're chasing them down the streets of New York City <laughs> is would be an example of, right, I guess, right, low hanging right. fruit. And then once that's eliminated, you can point to it and be like, wow, that's a lot of progress we've made. Right. But then like the final the final progress is going to be harder because you're you're having to then instead of going and looking at like a, a, a massive event, like insane amounts of of shootings, um, you know, intense, intense racism uh, and bigotry. And then you have to then get to like a case by case basis. Right. And you're you're now having you're now having discussions around the the fringes of like what policies do we use that will enact the least harm? Like what policies can we can we enable that will yeah, yeah. allow for better outcomes of anyone who's approached by police? Like, do we use social workers? Do we have a social worker accompany a policeman? Do we have police people go in pairs because it's shown that when police are in pairs, that there is a, a, a less chance of escalation because the cop will feel less afraid, right. right? So, and those smaller discussions take a lot, those are like a lot harder in some ways than simply just eliminating the big ticket items. You're right. That, yeah. persisted, for a, that persisted for a long time, right? That's a good point, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons that I, I really wanted to talk to you and why I wanted to talk to you and Will is because I think that both of those I think it is really instructive to talk about the progress that's been made. And I think that we could use a little more of that in our mainstream news today. But I don't want us to just talk about, well, you know, we're imprisoning you guys less than we used to. So be grateful for it. Like, I I hate that crap. It's like when your parents are like, well, you know, you should be grateful for your peas because there are starving kids in India or whatever. Like, I just it feels like such a feels like such a useless discussion tactic. And and it's why I think that like both voices, like both elements of that discussion are so useful because I think that it is useful to tell people like, hey, like things used to be really bad. So when you're you're in the streets marching for change that is necessary, it is important to understand that the some of the things that you're talking about are you might be fighting ghosts that you didn't even realize were dead And that for us to have the progress that's necessary, we have to recognize the progress mm-hmm. that we've made while also realizing that there are a lot of real issues remaining. Is that, am I making sense here? <laughs> Absolutely. If we're on Twitter, I would give you my uh, T.I. nodding <laughs> gif. That's what I would use. Yeah. Oh man, I hope I get one one day. <laughs> yeah. No, man, that, that's good, man. I, I would have never thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and more people should take that that view, that that idea of getting from 99 to 100. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. So a final question that I ask everyone who uh, is on the podcast, 
We are limited, I think, in all sorts of ways, right? We're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. So even the most well-intentioned, most caring person, they can try to think of every other person in their life or every other group of people, but they can't really be empathetic to everyone all the time. Our time is just too limited. We, we, we don't have the capacity in our, in our mind to hold everyone in our, in our brain at the same time. It's just literally impossible. And I think especially when you're online, like you and I are, it can sometimes be easy to kind of uh, silo ourselves and say, oh, these, these folks are on my team, those folks are on the other team. And, and I think that you're really good about trying to stay out of that sort of tribal mentality. But I'm just wondering, in the same way that I try and check myself every day, I try and think, who can I be empathetic to? Or who can I think about that I haven't really thought about in a while because I've gotten caught up in things? Is there any group of people or any person or any community that you would like to offer empathy to that maybe you haven't been thinking about? Native Americans. I mean, is that, I mean, that, that, I don't know if, if you want to, is it more like the, someone in my family or something? <laughs> or do you mean like, because it certainly would be Native Americans if it's like at a group level. Yeah. Yeah. Can you expand on that? Oh, sure. I mean, we, I mean, uh, uh, women, qu the queer community and now, uh, uh, black Americans are soaking up all of the, um, media time. Meanwhile, you've got uh, Native Americans on reservations who are, uh, the kids are, have probably the highest suicide rates. I'm sure that the adults have the highest alcoholism and the poverty rates are the highest. The high school graduation rates are the lowest and we rarely talk about them. I don't know why that is actually. I mean, the only time I hear about Native Americans is when maybe there's a pipeline going through their reservation and, and they're protesting. But outside of that, there are some issues that need to be, need to be dealt with. I think that's a really great point. I think it might have to do with the fact that it's very difficult for people to confront shame, right? Like I think that- Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think that historically what we've done to our Native American populations has been heinous. And I think that it's, you know, I think similarly to why it's so difficult to have conversations around race is because it, it, it forces us to confront ugly truths, right? And I, I wonder if that's what's driving some of that. Yeah, I guess so. And then it's also that there's just a smaller, just historically, it, it seems to me that there's this, this culture of we'll take care of it ourselves kind of thing, whereas black Americans have this protest culture. And then there's just a fewer number of them. And that might also play into it, you know, but I don't know, man, it might just be what you're saying. Shame. Yeah. Thank you, Rod. Thank you for that thoughtful answer. And, and thank you for this discussion. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, this has been good. 